Welcome to the Alley on the Run show. It's bonus episode day. I'm your host, Allie Feller, and every week I talk with inspiring people who lead interesting lives on the run and beyond. And while running is the thing that brings us all together, on these episodes, we learn the whys behind the runs, the decisions people have made to get where they are today, and how getting sweaty has factored in. I wanted to pop in today with a little something extra with my friend, Lee Glandorf. Lee is the head of communications at Tracksmith. She went to Yale. She was a rower, which if you listen to the Taylor Ritzel episode of the On the Job series, you know I am now very interested in rowing. What a fascinating sport. Did any of you row? Can you tell me more about this? I feel like I'd love to try it, but also I wouldn't. I don't think that I would be great. I actually don't think I could even get into the boat. I think I would tip it over. Uh, That's what I used to do when we would go canoeing as kids. Okay. Lee Glandorf, why a bonus episode? A few reasons. Let's talk about them. First, if you follow running news, you may have seen that last week Tracksmith announced it was adding two pretty cool members to its full-time team, pro runners Mary Kane and Nick Willis. Not as sponsored athletes, not as influencers, not as ambassadors, but as full-time salaried employees. I, of course, immediately emailed Lee at Tracksmith wanting to know all about this move, about why Tracksmith brought them on full time, about what this means for athlete sponsorships, and about what Mary specifically will be doing. Her job is rooted in New York City, and she's going to be focused on the community there. Also, I just think Mary's really cool, and I wanted to get some behind-the-scenes scoop about what it took to make this deal happen. So enter Lee Glandorf. Also, you've heard me talk about Tracksmith. I'm just a really big fan of them, of the apparel, but really of the people. I love what they're doing to support athletes right now, both at the everyday and amateur level, and well, at Mary and Nick's levels too. Most brands and companies aren't investing a lot in their runners and communities right now, and I get it. I think we're all just doing our best, but Tracksmith is doing a really good job, and they're really, really focused on the community, and that's important to me, as you know. Okay. And one last thing, the On The Job series. It's returning next week. I'm so excited to have Tracksmith back. They'll be sponsoring the series for a second season. And yeah, I think that those like 90 second ad spots that I do for them are great, but there's always more to a company's story. So Lee is here to share some of that along with her own running story. Now, this is not a sponsored episode, if that matters. I don't think it does, but this isn't like an hour-long Tracksmith advertorial. This was just something I wanted to do because these were questions I had and a conversation I thought would be interesting. So I hope you enjoy it. And now, my friend, Lee Glandorf. Lee, I am super excited to chat with you. We have been working together for a long time. In February, we became real life friends down in Atlanta, and it's an honor to get to have you. So welcome to the Alley on the Run show. Thank you so much. I'm very, very excited to be here. My first podcast. Wait, really? Uh-huh. I have, I've, I've been only behind the scenes scheduling podcasts, haven't yet made my, my debut. Oh, wow. Well, this is very exciting. So we'll, we'll ease you in. We start with a warm up. All I need is for you to tell everyone who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Sure. My name is Lee Glandorf. Uh, I'm from Boston, Massachusetts, born and raised. Um, and I know you're from New England, so I'm just going to be super specific. Born and raised in West Roxbury. Now I live in Jamaica Plain. 
Um, and I lead communications at Tracksmith, which is a running brand based here in Boston, uh, usually on Newbury Street, but now from various homes around the city. It's so funny. I forget who I was having a conversation with yesterday, but they were like, what has your you know, sort of strategy been for guests that you're having on the show? Like, are you planning for a lot of talk about COVID-19 or is it business as usual? And I, I was like, you know, eight weeks ago, it was, it was very like, how has your life changed and what's different? And how has this affected your training? And I'm like, and now this is just what we do. We're just working at home. And like, this is, I don't want to say it's our normal, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, I, I, I have been saying, so I expected the spring to be totally insane. Tracksmith does a lot at like, especially around the major marathon. So I originally, like, this was what my, my spring was supposed to be. I was supposed to go to Tokyo for the Tokyo marathon. So I wasn't even supposed to be in Atlanta for the marathon trials. I'd come back from that. We were going to do the speed project, um, as like a video shoot. So I was supposed to be going to that to LA and driving a minivan across a desert. Then we were going to come back and do the Boston Marathon and then the London Marathon, which we were going to do for a month. So I was going to go to London. So it was supposed to be like probably the craziest three months of my life. And I, I like 2020 dawned and I was anxious about it. And then, um, you know, Tokyo got canceled and I got the chance to go to Atlanta. And then everything started to kind of, you know, unwind from there. And it's it, the first two weeks, it was just really hard for me, at least to wrap my head around the fact that I was no longer going to have this insane spring, but I was going to have this kind of uh, different, I don't know. I don't know how to describe what I, it has been, but it's been far from what I expected to have my 2020 look like. But, you know, we've been, we've been lucky, been able to, people are still running, so we've still had work to do. Yeah, exactly. And I'm curious what, you know, when I look at you, I'm like, Ivy League educated, like top achiever, amazing woman. And with that, I tend to think that those are people who tend to be, this is a huge generalization, no one DM me saying I'm wrong, but <laughs> tend to be planners or, you know, people with to-do lists and just our stereotypical type A. What type of person are you? And when plans started shifting, are you like, I can roll with this? Or was this like, how do I, like, I'm just curious how you approach all of this personally. Um, so I'm a huge control freak. So whether that is like a type A personality or just like is inherent in me, I just need to control my world around me. And if I can't have that control, there's a lot of uncertainty. I definitely get a little uneasy. I'm, I'm 33 now. I think I, when I was 22, it was really bad. And now I think over the last decade and a half, I've learned to roll with the punches a little bit better. But I don't, I mean, I don't know. I think we get better and worse. I mean, I definitely am a, a planner. It's not a pretty, I'm a disorganized planner. You should see the notebook I have next to me. But I, you know, for example, I did listen to several episodes this morning of the podcast to make sure I was mentally prepared <laughs> oh and, and planning and preparing. So I won't, I won't say that my fast fives have been uh, looked at or discussed regularly with my boyfriend, but I will say that that gives you a, a kind of understanding of my personality. But um, I don't know. I think, you know, Every time, every period in life where you have an experience that kind of forces you to, to look at your own, like being a control freak is kind of like a privilege, right? It's like you have an opportunity to hold on to things tightly. And, and when that's taken away from you, it's kind of nice to just take a second and be like, oh, okay, do I need to control this? Like what happens if I, if I kind of just sit on the couch and, and see what happens, you know? 
Yeah. And that's not easy. I'm, that's something that I work on every single day. When you say things like control freak and lists and notebooks, like that's my love language right there. And (laughs) so that it's not easy. And I think that this time is also presenting an opportunity for us to kind of look at the way we tend to react to things and decide, is this how I want to react to things? Like I've been trying to do that a lot lately saying like, okay, this got canceled and my inclination is to freak out. But like, I don't want to be the person that freaks out. So I don't know. I don't have like a total beautiful rainbow point to wrap that up on. But just that it's it's a really interesting time to see how w- kind of that fight or flight reaction, right? And how we react to things and how we want to react to things. Yeah, no, I mean, just to end on that, but um, I was talking to my aunt uh, a few weeks ago and, and she was, we were, I was talking about how I like control and she was like, what's the corollary to that? And I was like, well, the corollary to control is rigidity. And so it's interesting, right? Like if you're super in control, like you're rigid and you can't bend. Um, and I do think that like anytime, like the best thing that can happen to you is to have all your plans get blown up because then you learn what happens when all your plans get blown up. And you, oh. and you adapt to that, right? Like worst case scenario for me, when you had told me, if you told me January 1st, 2020, that every single major marathon was going to get canceled and all my pop-ups were going to cancel some like a week out, I would have broke, I would have broken down, you know? And then here we are on the other side of that and somehow we're all still functioning. So, so in terms of where we are now, which we're having this conversation right exactly mid-May, there's still a lot up in the air for the fall. We really don't know where is your head at and where are your business plans at as much as you can talk about. Yeah, I mean, so we're still planning for uh, either activations because we have our track track house um, on Newbury Street for the Boston Marathon. And then ideally, we will be in London for the London Marathon and Chicago and New York. Berlin is, it looks like officially off the table based off of new regulations there. And we plan to be there. But as soon as the all those marathons got stacked on top of each other, Berlin was kind of looking the hardest for us to pull off. So We'll still plan and and we still, you know, have our sights on activating, but I think, you know, it's, it's on my to-do list as, as it were, like to start planning those things. And it's one of those ones that at the end of the week, I said, didn't do any planning for Chicago yet. And, you know, we'll see when we see when we get closer, it's on the list, but um, yeah, those are a priority for us. I think the biggest thing for us is we do these activations for a hundred days out from the marathons. So a big plan right now that we're working on is how we will activate 100 days from Boston and then kind of those waterfalls. Because the reality is that I think a lot of us will start planning for races, not necessarily knowing what's going to be the outcome. Um, And I think people are still going to want to start that planning, that training cycle for these races. Um, So we're kind of thinking about um, how we activate probably virtually, because I think by June, we won't be able to do run clubs yet but mostly virtually and then give people kind of a way to maybe halfway through that training cycle pivot to a new goal if they don't want to necessarily race a virtual marathon or, um, you know, maybe they want to switch to a mile or something like that. So we're excited about, you know, thinking about new ways to extend programming that we've had at the track house or around these major marathons in more of a global way because of um, what the lockdown has kind of forced us to think about because we can't do the usual activations. Now, did you guys have like, and I'm sure there have been many, but when this all really started, when we got back from Atlanta, when things really started to get serious here in the US and things started to get locked down and the track house had to close, was there a 
sort of state of the union for Tracksmith that said, here's what's happening and here's what we're doing? Because I just, I, I so associate Tracksmith with the track house and with that physical space and all the work that you do for that community in person. So I'm curious, what were some of your goals and, and was there a conversation around how do we keep supporting our athletes during this time? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it was interesting that week was crazy. Um, on Wednesday, um, I think that was the 11th of March. I insisted that Matt and I still take a planned trip to New York because I wanted to meet the people we're supposed to meet. And actually we were meeting Mary Kane and I was like, we have to go. And then <laughs> like, as I took the train home that night, I was like, this was a terrible idea because the news was just <laughs> blowing up. Um, but I'm really glad we made that trip. And so then the next day I was told not to come to work. And then we had a, a big team meeting kind of being like, I think we're at least for the next two weeks, all going to be working from home. And we started to kind of cascade plans. And we have a nice tight team. Lou Serafini, who runs our community, is in charge of both kind of like our online activations and then our in-person activations and kind of quickly was able to pivot to, you know, assigning workouts that people could do on their own. And he immediately launched a Slack group for our Boston community members. And, and you know, originally that was just kind of, you know, exchanging information like, is this race going to go on? Hey, can I run here? What is closed? Um, you know, and even just, you know, trading advice, like, you know, for a couple of weeks there, people were like, oh, I think you should still run on the course for the Boston Marathon. And then it became, you know, incredibly clear that that was not something that you should be doing. So we're lucky. We're about 23 people, which makes it a lot easier to pivot when you need to. So there were, you know, immediate meetings being like, how are we going to do this? And how are we going to um, start bringing some things to life in ways that we definitely did not expect to? Um, I'm really excited. I, I think we're going to come out of this, at least from a community standpoint, stronger than ever, just because I think, and I think this is true for a lot of brands, kind of assessing things that were maybe back burner priorities in terms of how to, to activate through like a Zoom meeting with people um, have now really come to the to the front of people's to-do list. Yeah. And I love that. And I mean, I know so many people appreciate that so much, especially people who might live alone and don't have their running buddies that they get to meet up with. We're finding so much value in our our internet friends and our online communities now more than ever. No, I know. I've been so impressed. Um, some of my coworkers started the Run Free Grand Prix. And that was like a virtual racing um, series where you made a team and then they ran a mile of 5K, a half marathon, and I think a 10K. And they got 500, 500 people to sign up for that. It was amazing. Um, so I think yeah. that, like the community is, is wild and the appetite to like keep connecting in different ways is, is really there. So, you know, I think, you know, in 2021, we'll look back and be like, wow, that was really a turning point for how we all thought about each other. And, and maybe like, brought down some of those silos like you're from the New York running community Boston is obviously where I'm rooted in the Boston running community and it's so easy to just kind of get um, myopic about the teams and the culture and the races that are in that community and I, I think one thing that this has done is definitely made people think about okay sure it's nice to do group runs or or activations around you know a specific city but what are ways that we can kind of connect on a larger level the, the Run Free Grand Prix was super fun to watch. A group of my girlfriends won it, a group of all women, uh, oh, Jenny Donnelly and Anoush and, uh, and Jess and Alana. They It was super fun. They all ran like actual PRs doing wow. that at all those distances. And they were like, we need these to count, <laughs> which is the funny thing about virtual racing. Since you mentioned, you know, the Boston community being so vital for you, what did 
what would have been Marathon Monday? What did you do on the day that would have been the Boston Marathon in April? What did that day look like for you? What did we do? Oh, I was, I, <laughs> what did we do? So we, that is typically a day off in Boston, right? And we never, we never, we always work through that day. And it's, it's always our busiest day of the year. And so I had like slyly the meeting before be like, do we have to work on Monday? And everyone was like, yeah, we do. We, we still do. And I was like, well, that's not fair. Um, so what did we do? I think, I think it ended up being just a regular Monday for us, which is kind of wild. I went for a run in the morning and I think we like slacked our coworkers and saw if they were running some crazy distances, but we would just, I wish I had a cooler answer for what we did, but I think here at least we were just kind of like eyes on the prize hosting on getting uh, stories out. So you mentioned that trip to New York. We got to talk about it. Mary Kane and Nick Willis, big week. You just announced that they have both joined your team as full-time salaried employees. So my first question, I want to know everything about this, but does this make you Mary Kane's boss? It does not make me her boss. I am kind of siloed in communications, not siloed. We all are in the marketing team um, and she is community. Uh, and so is Nick kind of in that umbrella. So we all report actually to a guy named Brian Eckel, um, who's our brand president. But um, I would say Mary is my awesome colleague. And I've been, I, I obviously have been working with her a lot in the lead up to this because she, we were doing kind of like a lot of prep interviews and man, she is one of the wisest and most quotable people I have ever come across. I, as a communications person who was, you know, has to, you know, lend people a platform to speak, uh, I, you're always worried. You're like, okay, I have to work with this person. How's it going to be? Am I have to really coach them up or am I going to have to, you know, make sure they don't say certain things. And, and she's just not just a pro, but just wise. I'm really excited for people to get to hear more from her, especially in New York. But I think globally because she's she's got a lot of wisdom to impart. Well, can we go back in time? Let's talk about how this happened. Uh, let's talk specifically about Mary because I, I know that, especially for Allie on the Run Show listeners, we are all huge, huge fans and supporters of hers. And so with Mary in particular, when did this relationship start and how did this all come to be? Yeah. So, I mean, we started talking to her at the beginning of this year, just with a, diff a couple of different ideas based on our goals for 2020. And it kind of started to become obvious that there was an opportunity to work together in like a deeper way. Um, and around the same time, the conversations had started with Nick Willis and kind of the opportunity to bring them on board and to work started to kind of coalesce as a, an option. And so when I met Mary in March, we were getting to kind of the last stages of the conversations and Matt and I happened to be in New York. And so we met her at a, a restaurant in the East Village and just sat down. And it was kind of an opportunity for her to, to actually get to meet some of the team in person. And it was one of those, I, I'm sure everyone has this, those meetings where you meet a person, whether it's career or friendship, and you just sit down and within two minutes, you're like, oh, okay, we get each other. There's, there's an understanding and there's a similar outlook and there are some shared goals here. And so it just became really obvious in that conversation that Mary really understood what Tracksmith was trying to do. And, and we really respected her goals as an athlete and an individual. And she just is, has nothing but passion for the running community. And I think has seen the industry from a lot of different ends and just kind of wanted an opportunity to, to get in a little deeper and to have an impact. Um, and saw Tracksmith as a great partner for that. So after that meeting, it was pretty much full steam ahead. 
she has such great roots in the running and uh, the New York running community that it became obvious that that should be how um, she worked with us and, and Lou Serafini here in Boston um, has set up a really good kind of platform for how the community managers engage with the runners in that city. And he's also um, a really talented runner. He, since he started working at Tracksmith has gone, he ran a sub four mile. Um, I forget his 5k PR, but it's crazy fast. And then he was at the Olympic trials for the marathon this year. So he kind of established like the framework for you can have this job that's highly invested in others in the running space and also go really fast yourself. So I think we were able to prove to both Mary and Nick that they would be able to do this job and train really hard and, and allow each venue to feed off each other. So yeah, that's kind of the, the background on, on how we kind of came to this, this decision with them. But what's different about this is this is not Mary Kane and Nick Willis are sponsored by Tracksmith. They will wear Tracksmith on every run and at every race and Tracksmith pays them bonuses if they place X. Like this is not a traditional sponsorship model. This is very different. It's a what I think you're calling an athlete partnership. And so I'm curious about why was that what you wanted to do versus a more traditional sponsorship type partnership? Like I said, they are full-time salaried employees who are working very much in marketing, in community, in events. Uh, it's very different than what we see with traditional athletes and even influencers. So can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to go that route with them? Yeah, I mean, I think it was as much our desire as it was their desire. So it was kind of a, a meeting of the minds there. Tracksmith is inspired by and kind of built on this love for what we call the amateur spirit. And it's essentially you know, the classical roots of the word amateur, which essentially amo in Latin is I love. And then in French, it's amateur. I can't say that right. I'll have to edit that. But anyway, um, <laughs> and so it's this idea of, you know, running for the love of it and allowing running to kind of be that passion within your life, um, but maybe not relying on it to be everything to you. So giving Mary and Nick or and not giving but inviting Mary and Nick to be employees of the brand kind of gives them the freedom to make running that cherished part of their life versus a typical athlete arrangement which works really well for some pros where your training is the 100% focus of your day and your compensation comes based off of results and uh you know then bonuses related on that we wanted to give Mary and Nick the opportunity to contribute to Tracksmith in a way that extended just beyond results. So I think when we think about like, just think about any role that you have in an organization, you can contribute so much more from within than you can as kind of a, a contractor. So we just felt that their gifts as leaders and voices for the sport really extended beyond just kind of like how fast they went on the track. Um, and they felt similarly and, and wanted to contribute that way in our company. So for Mary, that means building our New York community virtually and on the ground once we can do that. And then for Nick, that means really like building out training programs and events that will give uh, our consumers kind of a better athletic experience. And then at the end of the day, that just kind of allows them to live a little bit more of a balanced life and to also just, you know, for Nick, he's 37, he will try to compete at Tokyo in 2021. And then he's looking for an opportunity to kind of deepen his career um, and establish himself as he looks to, you know, 
winding down his competitive life. For Mary, she's 24. She's got a ton of runway ahead of her. But she uh, she had this great quote that she said to um, women's running that was, great runners have short memories. Um, and she said she has a very long memory and is the kind of person I'm sure you would um, relate to this, Ali, who can get you know hung up on things if she doesn't have distractions. Um, so for her, the ability to kind of also immerse herself in this job is just, you know, the best of both worlds. And I think the nice thing about working within running as someone who has done it now for four years is that it's incredibly motivational to just be around other runners of all levels. Like it makes you a better runner, whatever level you are. It's, it's, it's kind of like the, un, the hidden secret of getting to work in this industry. Oh, for sure. I like that you knew that that quote would speak to me, by the way. Yeah, she, she's, <laughs> she's, she's, I mean, it makes sense. She was a business major at Fordham, which is why this role is really good for her. But she also was considering pre-med. So she is, she's definitely in that type A bubble of um, young women oh, yeah. who <laughs> likes to organize her life a certain way. <laughs> so the the timing of this announcement, I think for many of us, the timing was interesting. We're not seeing a lot of brands right now saying, hey, we're bringing on new employees, new partners, new anything. Not many people are saying, hey, here's where we're investing our money and energy right now. It's just we're seeing a lot of the opposite. So what do you know about the timing of all this? Why now? Yeah, I mean, from the get-go, we had a lot of ambitions for 2020 um, and we're kind of set up for um, the Olympic trials and having 138 athletes in Atlanta was kind of like the kickoff point for that. Um, and we, you know, we're working towards some things around the summer trials. And so when things started to shut down, um, you know, quite frankly, putting on pop-ups and things are time intensive and, and work intensive and, and capital intensive. Um, and so as we kind of like revisited where we were at, there was clear that we had some opportunities to do some new things. Um, so it was kind of a combination of Nick and Mary being game and ready to go on board. And then us kind of having some clear sky in front of us with some uh, events and activations kind of taken off the table. So we decided to run with it. What types of beyond Mary and Nick in general because I know people listening are wondering this, like, wait, I love Tracksmith. I wish Tracksmith would sponsor me. I'm an amateur runner or I have a certain number of followers on Instagram. Tell me about that side of what you do. What types of athletes do you partner with from, you know, I know there's a lot of talk around the word influencer, but for lack of a different term for for influencer partnerships, for bigger partnerships, for community management type stuff, just what what types of people are you guys looking to work with? Yeah, so we have been fortunate in that we've kind of been pretty clear-eyed about how we want to go about this. I think in the world that I work in, which is, you know, influencers and uh, mine's kind of like more influencer and, and celebrity relations. And then uh, there's the community side of it. So there's like two sides of that opportunity, you know, it's pretty easy to just send product into the world and hope that someone cool wears it and then say like, okay, that that was great. What we've really focused on instead of doing that is building deep relationships with runners in kind of that sub elite space. This past year, as I mentioned, we ran for all of 2019, our OTQ program, which was aimed at any runner who had gotten the Olympic trial standard. Um, and we were beneficiaries of the fact that 
this year was so outstanding um, in terms of how many women and men achieved the standard. Um, we launched it for CIM 2018. And I think we thought, you know, if we could get the goal, you know, at the outset, what we were kind of mandated by our, our CEO, Matt Taylor, was, you know, how do we get the most number of sashes on the course in Atlanta? And so we thought, you know, maybe if we get 50 women, that'll be amazing. And, you know, we opened the program at CIM in 2018. And I think by like the time we hit January 1st, we already had 50 women signed up and it was really a precursor for what was to come. So we got kind of a front row seat to, to that level of achievement. So that was our main focus for 2019 was just recruiting amateur runners who want to be a part of that program. And they received a quarterly stipend of gear. Um, and and membership to Hair IC, which is our uh, global running community, and then coffee from Linden and True. And the, the mindset behind that was just, if you are an amateur runner, you're someone who is, is probably working full time. You know, we had women in the program, and I'm sure you've talked to a lot of them, who were nurses, uh, you know, PhD doctorates, they were moms and doctors, they were journalists. Um, and so, for them, it was just really about like giving them, you know, some options to lessen some of the costs that come along with training a lot. So for us, we could provide gear and then Linden True was great and they came on board and provided coffee. Um, and that uh, outcome in Atlanta to give all these runners kit and set them up with, you know, a hospitality suite where they could get treated even more like the pros. Um, Atlanta Track Club did an amazing job. We just kind of tried to, to give them one step uh, on top of that. And, um, it was hugely successful and we've seen, you know, a lot of great dividends. Like I don't have to, you know, reach out to a runner who's in a program like that and say like, Oh, will you post something about us? You know, they will do it organically because we have that connection. And I think that's rare in the industry. And so we're really excited for this next year, kind of extending that program to cover more of like the track and field trials and then maybe some levels below just like immediately eye of the standard, but people who are maybe chasing some of those standards. So I think for us, since we're small and, and you know, our marketing team, Mary and Nick definitely added big, a, a big chunk to it. But other than that, it's myself and Lou Serfini, who is in charge, has been in charge of community. And then Andy, who does meter and then Izzy, who you spoke to and our brand president, that's it. So, so we have to stay really focused. So for us, it's kind of like, how do we continue to extend that, you know, support and relationships within that kind of uh, sub elite tier of runners? Because I think those are the people you've, you've talked about it, but I think those are the people who a lot of us admire because they're the people we see. I saw one guy who was in our program when I was biking home the other day and I saw him on a long run. And, you know, that's inspiring to me to see those runners as much as it is to see Des Linden talking about her work or, you know, Kate Grace. Um, and, and sometimes those runners are a lot closer to you because you actually are, are, you know, seeing them at the track and can talk to them. So um, that's our focus. Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing that I hear from this community directly, it's that, look, we love the pros. We admire them. We are in awe of them. We bow down to them. But when it comes to the stories that I think, not to say they most inspire us, but that we relate to and that are the most aspirational for most of us, it is the amateur runner. It's it's the the women working 80-hour weeks and running the trials. It's Veronica Jackson who was working as a lawyer and then goes out and runs like a 242 in Atlanta. It's uh it's those stories I think that 
so many of us think about when we're struggling to get out the door or when we have big goals that we want to chase down. So I, I love that that's where your heart is at and that Tracksmith's heart is at. For sure. And I mean, I think it, I think you, you spelled it out a lot. I mean, I think when you're struggling, like in a, in a regular work week, when I'm getting up at, you know, 545 to get out the door for a run in the morning, you know, it's a lot easier to think about someone who we work with, like a Sam Roker, who's a, who's a nurse and is working 12 hour shifts and, and does her morning run and then a double and to say like, okay, I'm going to get out of bed and do this because of that. Then maybe relating to a pro who gets sleep in a little later and do their run. Um, the training is still super hard and what they accomplish is incredible, but sometimes in, in order to get like your own personal fire going, it's that, it's that kind of tangible. Like I understand that some people like Nicholas Thompson at Wired, who, you know, he wrote this incredible essay on how he was starting to go faster in his forties and just kind of like how he found time in his day to eke out of, you know, 10 more minutes of speed is pretty incredible and, and makes you say when you're 33, like, holy crap, I'm doing nothing, you know? <laughs> well, you're not doing nothing, but I do want to talk about your running story. Let's talk about Lee the runner. When did you find running and uh, when did you fall in love with running? Yeah, um, I started running probably uh, pretty young. I remember like doing some Boston Globe road races around here. And I think we had, my sister reminded me a while ago, we had, I went to a Catholic school and we had a field day. And I think I won every like field day event. Like it was like a 50 yard dash and a long jump. And like I won everyone. It was one of those things where it was actually kind of embarrassing. And so I went to Boston Latin, which is a high school here in Boston that it's, you have to take a test to get in. And then you start in seventh grade and you could join any of the high school teams as a seventh grader. So I joined the track team, indoor track. I started with that in seventh grade and it was actually really scary. I'll never forget. We were doing like drills, like a skips and stuff and at the track and I, I messed it up and like fell into a senior and they were laughing at me and I was like, Holy God, I don't know if I can ever come back to this, but, um, <laughs> I fought through it and I just liked, it was a sport that I'm good at sports where the amount of effort that you put in generally results in, you know, a better outcome. So if I can outwork you, like that's probably a good sport for me. I did that for a while until about my sophomore year of high school when I was introduced to the sport of rowing. Um, a cousins of mine had been rowers for a while and I loved seeing the head of the Charles here in, in Boston and started rowing and just fell super in love with that. Um, and actually, it, you know, you do a lot of cross training and rowing. And so we ran a lot more and I improved a ton just as a runner through rowing just because of the aerobic fitness that you get. Rowing is incredibly hard aerobically. And I, I started rowing and I was like, I think I'm in good shape. And I immediately was like, oh crap, I track and field did nothing for me. I was a high jumper and like a hurdler. So it, it hadn't really been like the level it needed to be to be good fit enough for rowing. And so I stopped running my junior year of high school and just rowed 100% from then on and, and was fortunate enough to be able to row in college um, at Yale. And again, um, lots of running throughout that experience. Um, we did like time three mile runs. I'll never forget. We, um, I had to, I prided myself on being a good runner, um, in rowing. I'm actually fairly small for a, a rower. Most rowers are like six feet tall. Um, I'm five, nine. 
And so running was one place where I, I could be like in the top three on the team. And I'll never forget, we were doing our timed three mile run on the track and the track team happened to be at the track. And I had a crush on one of the guys who was on the track team and we were running and I was trying so hard, but at the same time being like, I'm kind of embarrassed that they're watching us like kill ourselves and we're so slow compared to the track team. But I was like, still proud of myself that I was like top, at least top two. I was like, okay, I know they don't think I'm fast, but at least I'm the fastest of these slow girls. So, um, <laughs> and then, um, I graduated from college and I don't know if you've talked to a lot of people about like that transition from being an athlete to kind of like losing that identity, but it hit me hard. I was living in New York and I was working in fashion at the time. And just like the loss of my teammates and just kind of, I forgot how, or I realized how much my sense of like self-worth was tied into like doing a really hard workout and like leaving at the end of the day and being like, I'm a good person. Cause I, did really good job on six by one K. Um, and so I like struggled for a while with like, how do I identify without this kind of like pillar of my personality? Um, and so running kind of provided that to me and especially just like picking a goal of running a marathon. And so I ended up running the Richmond marathon in 2010. And that was my first marathon. Um, I ran it. My sister went to UVA, which is why I ran that one. And it was amazing. It was, um, I have a twin sister and we went to college together and we rode together. Um, and so we had done pretty much everything together. When I moved to New York, she was living in Connecticut. And so it was like the first time that we were doing anything like semi remotely separate. We still saw each other like every week, but we were, we were not living in the same house. We did not have the same job. Um, and so finishing the marathon was probably one of the first things that I had done, like totally independent of her um, in my life which was just, I don't know, there's, as a twin, it's hard to, to explain what that feels like, but it's pretty cool to, to finish something and be like, cause I remember I, I hit the wall at 16 and she ran the half and I was praying that she would like be on the sidelines so that I could ask her to run with me. And it turned, she just like, they couldn't find me on the course. And so I spent like the last time I was being like, where's Christine, where's Christine? And she never showed up. And so to finish that at what was then a BQ time, um, was just like, oh, okay, this is something that I am, am personally good at. So um, I've run a couple of marathons since then. Over time, I've kind of trained myself to uh, not try and use my fitness as like a barometer for my self-worth, if that makes sense. So now I actually haven't raced like a marathon in three or four years. Um, but I run, especially now, I run like six days a week and um, through Tracksmith get to try distances that that maybe I hadn't tried because I jumped right out of college into marathoning so we like raced some 5ks I've raced a mile but nowadays I don't know it's it's weird to work at a running company where a lot of my coworkers run 100 mile weeks and I'm just like I think I got 25 this week you know but I think that's good for someone like me who said that you know fitness and and workouts can kind of be a crutch to just kind of do it for the fun and do it because it makes me feel better um, and do it because it's a great way to experience the world around you. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. You know, a nice morning run somewhere between three and five miles and a long run on the weekend kind of does it for me and I'm happy. How did you make that adjustment going from someone who did 
sort of define success and probably even happiness by your fitness levels and your race times. How did you make the transition from that person to the person you are now? Um, it was kind of, it was just a slow, you know, process. I think the benefit of maybe not immediately being the world's best runner really helped. I am okay. Like I'm not, the, I think that, you know, being able to run like a, a 335 marathon is like, very solid, but especially again, the industry I work in or with Chacksmith, that's kind of like, okay, that's cute. <laughs> but I'm <laughs> proud of it or happy with it. And I think just over time, just kind of learning to not define, have the results define me really helped. I remember I did the New York marathon in, I want to say, oh, 2013. So it was right after they couldn't have done it. 2014. Either way, I did it. And that one was the same kind of thing. It was horrible. I ran terribly. I actually got passed by an old rowing teammate in, in Central Park. And she ran by and she was like, hey, Lee, hold on to me. Like, let's go. And I was like, I am dead. You can go. And I was so, and I was so like kind of dismayed by that because that's not my personality. Like I would in normal life be really mad that she had passed me. But I finished and I started crying. And it was the same kind of like, holy cow, I did that personally. And I think maybe just kind of learning that that was enough, like me appreciating that was enough. And yeah, and then uh, DNFing at the Chicago Marathon a couple of years ago also really helped because it was just like, you got to pull that bandaid off. Like we talked about with what I mentioned earlier with rigidity of just like do the worst thing and then you won't be as precious about anything anymore. You're like, okay, I, I embarrassed myself by DNFing. How bad was that? Did anyone care? No. Okay, you're still a good person. Your boyfriend still likes you, you know, that kind of stuff. Most people, most people in the world don't even know that you didn't finish the marathon. They're just like, oh, that time to half was really good. What happened afterwards? And you're just like, oh, nothing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I went yeah. to the bar. I had brunch. It's all good. Um, but it's funny you mentioned that because when I asked that question in my head, I'm thinking like, there's got to be some, and I put this word in quotes, failure that gets you to that point to make such a shift from someone who does care a lot about times and does use that as a defining measurement to be like, no, it's not important anymore. I run three to five miles and it's cool. Like in my head, I'm like, there had to have been some like bad race along the way. And then you're telling the story and I'm like, oh, no bad race. And then, oh, and the yeah. DNF in Chicago, which listen, there's nothing wrong with that. Like you said, no one cares. You're still a great human and still a great runner. Uh, but I like that you tacked that on there at the end. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the other thing really was like the humility of of getting to work with people who are just way better at you than you will ever be, like kind of helped me reframe it because it's nice to like be around people who really care, but not have to care yourself is is like really refreshing. It's like, okay, it's not a competition. I can be here. They can enjoy it one way. I can enjoy it another um, is also really cool. But you did choose to pursue a job in the running industry. Like you said, you were in fashion. Let's talk about the road from fashion to, well, running fashion, I guess. Uh, how did you get the job at Tracksmith? I guess I'll just give you the, the longest story without all the spiels. But as I mentioned, I you know ran and then was a rower in high school. And the whole time I was also really into fashion. And one fun thing about rowing is that there's kind of a culture that you can take your uniforms and like design them yourselves. And so I would always like design our fun unisuits. And I loved, I loved just like showing up to a race in something a little crazy. We had like these black unisuits with like a Hawaiian print on them um, and having people kind of like side eye you and then going really fast and winning. Um, and so I carried that into college um, 
and I was a history major at Yale and uh, I knew I didn't want to do the typical, like at that time it was kind of like eye banking, consulting, lawyer, doctor were like the only options that people kind of like knew how you got somewhere. Um, and so I, I thought ah, I'd like to at least give fashion a try. I obviously didn't make the good right college choice for that. I should have gone to like NYU or FIT or something, but how can I get there? Um, and I met, made a connection to someone who was in HR at Dolce & Gabbana and got a summer internship my junior year there working in PR. It was really scary. It was definitely devil wears Prada energy levels um, in terms of like, you really didn't want to mess up because they were going to get yelled at and, and some, you know, hanging around with really glamorous dresses, but also just organizing ties. But I happened to, the woman who was running the entertainment PR department, which is just all like celebrity relations, um, needed an assistant during the summer. So I ended up filling in with her and we really got along really, really well. And she was like, don't go back to college. And I was like, I have to go back to college. Um, and so I went back, did my senior year. And then of course the great recession hit. And so I was graduating and there were not many obvious jobs. And I was kind of like, okay, am I going to do this fashion thing? I thought about coaching. I thought about going to get a PhD. And I was able to get um, a fashion job in New York. It wasn't in PR. It was in production, which is when you're dealing with the factories to, to produce the clothing. And it was a terrible fit for me. I really, really hated that job. And it was a bad, just a bad match. Um, and so I left and was able to get a job at like a small tech agency in PR and slowly kind of worked my way back to communications and ended up uh, about a year later having my old boss call me because she was going to Tommy Hilfiger and hired me as her assistant in an entertainment PR department there. And so I worked for two very crazy years in fashion PR. Um, the entertainment PR side of it is wild. Um, I was thinking, you know, I had like Elizabeth Banks's Met Gala dress in my walk-up kitchen. Um, I had to like get out of the car on my birthday to like make sure I could organize a flight for Bradley Cooper, just like things like that, that are kind of crazy for a 24 year old to be interacting with. Um, and at this time I was still trying to run, like I ran the Richmond marathon right before I got that job. And I would like go for runs and had to like, if I wanted to run, I had to go for a run, but like carry my Blackberry with me the whole time and make sure I ran back by the office so that I could come back in at like 7 PM because you know, something random would come up and it was an intense job that really trains you well for not saying no to anything. And I realized after two years that it, it just wasn't how I wanted to live my life. So I moved back to Boston where I'm from and ended up working at a PR agency, working with like a bunch of different clients. Um, that's all just media relations, influencers, all this stuff that kind of encompasses like modern day PR um, and I started working with clients like Converse and then a couple in the sports industry and realized, okay, if I can, if I can do this job and have it relate to sports, I think that this is how I'm going to like it. Because I, I kept like every six months being like, should I go get a PhD again? Um, or should just straight out. And, um, uh, around that time Tracksmith launched and like every single person I knew texted me and was like, this brand is so you. Um, and so I, I filed that away and in 2015, Tracksmith had its first Boston marathon pop-up and I went and I met Matt, who's the founder and some of the team members. I actually ran to the pop-up, um, with a friend of mine and we met them and I was like, okay, that was great. They seem really awesome people. And I like filed it away and I added them all on LinkedIn. And then six months later, 
they got funding, like a first round, a round of funding. And it was on like TechCrunch. And again, someone said it to me and I knew enough of that stage that if there was any chance they would ever hire an in-house communications person, that it was once I just recently got some money. Um, so I sent Matt what I call my LinkedIn love letter um, and was like, I love what you're doing. This is why I love it. Here's what I could do if you would give me a chance. Um, and he wrote back. And at the time, I didn't know that Matt will write back to anyone who writes him a really nice note. He's a very <laughs> good person. But at the time, I was like, score. Um, and it took six months of like conversations with Matt, but I finally convinced them to like get rid of their in the PR agency that they're using and like bring me on in house. And so that was in, oh, wow. Now I can't remember. It was in 2016 that I started at Tracksmith in February, 2016. So it's been four years since. Um, and it's been awesome. Um, and I started mostly kind of doing just pure media relations. So just, you know, making sure Tracksmith was in the press um, and then managing like our first or our second Boston Marathon pop-up. Um, and since then, my job has really grown to encompass like pretty much all the words that you see from Tracksmith come through me in some capacity. So um, it's been fun to kind of grow with the company too, in terms of what I do. All right. So since we are working together on this on the job series, which season two is coming, which is so fun. I ask this to everyone who's on that series, which is what advice do you have for people listening, thinking, ooh, that job sounds cool or working in the running industry sounds cool and they're feeling a little bit inspired. What advice do you have for them? I mean, I think the advice that I would have is like, how can you consume as much information about that industry and the people working with it as possible? Um, you know, I was essentially stalking Tracksmith for probably a year and a half before I, you know, made my initial overture. But then when I was able to do that, I like, I came, I came prepared, right? I was, I was here with like, this is what you do great. This is what I think I could bring to the table. This is why you should hire me. So, um, I just think, you know, if you can kind of like really indulge in the running industry and then, you know, figure out ways to connect with those people. I, I feel like the industry itself is small enough that a lot of people are willing to, you know, answer a DM or, you know, respond to that email and, and make connections if you're willing to show that like you really have this passion and, and can bring something unique to the table. All right. And before we do our sprint to the finish round, the other question that I really like asking is how do you measure success both personally and professionally? What does a good day look like for you? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I think for me, a good day it definitely involves a run. And so I feel, I feel more successful if I have run. Um, just kind of like, I don't know about you, but if you get, I get like addicted to running. And so sometimes that kind of makes me feel just more at peace. Um, in terms of success in my job, I think if I have helped us put something out into the world, that makes people, I mean, we talk about making people fall deeper in love with running, but like, I think if I can help put something out that maybe sparks some inspiration or made people think about the sport a little differently, um, that's successful to me. So whether that's, you know, a piece of content or the email that we write or whatever we reached out to our community with, or even just our Instagram, like that is good and thought provoking. Uh, it's a good day for me. I love that. 
All right. Should we do our sprint to the finish? Okay. Yeah. I'm nervous. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, you're a pro. <laughs> what would your last meal on earth be? Shoot. I would say, I'm going to just say peanut butter and jelly because I love it so much. I just can't imagine. I think, and I would also be, if I knew it was my last meal on earth, I'd be really anxious. So I would want something comforting. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite movie. All right, I'm torn between Bend It Like Beckham and the most recent Little Women. Ooh, I, I, really you, good answers. The most recent Little Women, I just sobbed the whole time. It, it brought my sister's relationship with the four and then it like Beckham. I'm just like, if you like sports, like that's a movie that as a female, you really connected with. So I like both of those. Favorite TV show? I, I love Gilmore Girls, but I have to give a plug to the TV show I'm currently obsessed with. It's called A French Village and it's a French TV show that chronicles one year in um World War II, a, te- a village in World War II, France. And I'm obsessed with everything World War II related. And it's so good. We watched an episode every night for most of quarantine because I'm so obsessed with it. All right. Well, I've never heard of that, but I have to laugh that you are the second person on the Alley on the Run show this week who went to Yale and who says Gilmore Girls is their favorite TV show. <laughs> so I love that. Very fitting, very on brand. I liked it before. I mean, she went to Yale before I did. So it was kind of like, <laughs> I liked her. I loved the show before I even knew that that was going to be our connective point. (laughs) Who was your childhood celebrity crush? I feel like it would be exciting to say someone other than Jonathan Taylor Thomas, but like (laughs) that's mine about (laughs) like home improvement. Like just to me, that like is like teeny bop, like who you were in love with. Oh, um, slightly older. I was obsessed with shoot. He was, Newt Scamander in the most recent Harry Potter. I can't remember his name. Uh, now I can't tell the story because I can't remember his name, but he's that redheaded guy. Um, and I always wanted to meet him. Eddie Redmayne, sorry. Eddie Redmayne was my super crush. When we worked at Tommy Hilfiger, I wanted to meet him so bad. And then when I moved to Cambridge, he literally walked in front of me. Like the first day I moved back to Cambridge, he was there on the streets of Cambridge. It was wild. And it was a sign that I was supposed to live here. But. That's a great story. I love that. Darwin Street or Darwin on Mount <laughs> Auburn. I still remember it. Walked right by. All right. Imaginary scenario. You wake up in the morning and you look at your phone and you see that you have like 60 texts from people saying, oh my God, did you see blank wearing Tracksmith on Instagram? Your friends know you'll be excited because it's like your dream person to see authentically repping Tracksmith. Who is it? Oh, Kate Middleton. <sighs> I love that. I mean, Great I'd, answer. I'd, you were ready for I'd that. I'd take Pippa Middleton too, or Meghan Markle. Like any of those three, I would be, I'd lose my mind. I can see that too. I can very much see all of them in Tracksmith, especially Kate, for sure. She's got that total preppy look about her. And they're good runners. Oh yeah, I know. Okay. Where did you have your first real kiss? Um, I was a late bloomer. So freshman year of college in my dorm room. If you could go for a run with anyone right now, we're all dying to run with someone. Who would it be? Um, I think it would actually be Kate Middleton. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I, w- I want her gossip. I feel like running is where you get it, right? Oh, for sure. We've talked about this on the show so much that the things that we're willing to say, this is another Veronica Jackson who I mentioned earlier and who runs for Tracksmith. She said this when she was on the show that we say so much more to our running friends. And she was like, I think it's because you're not looking them in the eye. You're side to side. And so you'll say anything. That that or like just like the little bit of endorphins, just kind of like you're, it's like being drunk. Yeah, exactly. Sorry for what I said on the run. I love it. All right, you're about to win the race of your dreams. What song do you want playing as you break the tape? 
Celine Dion. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, when when you touch me like this, what's up? How does that go? I don't know. I want the thunder part of that song playing. As I oh yeah, I love to, that. We used to. It's rock all coming back to me now. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. I we used to rock out to that with my teammates. So it'd be a homage to them. That is my all time favorite answer on the show. Just so <laughs> Thank you know, you. That, that really makes me proud. <laughs> That is my love language. Celine Dion Celine is my Dion, love. Celine Dion and lists. Yes. All right. You get to pick anyone to come out and drape the flag over your shoulders after you've won. Who gets the honor? I think that'd have to be my twin, Christine. Oh. Mostly because I'd be like, look, I did it. And I mean, I'm very competitive. I used to like line up our our um, report cards and say who was better. And so I would, I think it would be a little bit of that. But no, I would be just be really touched to have her there at that moment. <laughs> I have a shocked look on my face, but I definitely would have done the exact same thing and probably did with my brother. We're not twins, but that sounds like something I would do. So I like that. Two more people. You get to pick two people to hold the finish line tape as you break it. Who do you want to do that? Hold the finish line tape as I break it. Mm, I would say my younger sister, Carolyn. And then my mom's going to be mad when I say this because I wouldn't say her as the other holder but I grew up with a babysitter her name is Rosa and she's the best and so I want her her to be holding the other the other side of the tape but my mom's sorry like, mom am I? she'll yeah. listen to this too she's gonna be mad oh mom she can be hanging out with me on the sidelines we'll have fun we'll have mimosas it'll be great uh what is something that you are completely obsessed with right now um so I'm actually wearing a sweatshirt about it and I mentioned it earlier but I am entirely obsessed with like anything related to the resistance in world war ii france um i've read like four books about them i'm watching this french tv show about it um I, uh, there's a lot i mean this is a podcast that i know it has a lot to do with like women's running and women's sports um so there's a lot of great stories about like women spies during the french resistance um uh Madame Four Kids War and A Woman of No Importance are two books that I really recommend. So that's like all I care about right now, other than my job. <laughs> all right. You decide to host your own running podcast, Lee on the Run. Who's your first interview? Who? Um, I would love to talk to, because I was working on some stuff for Texas about this, um, Wyoming Atias. She was a Tiger Bell, um, uh, the Tennessee State, like, track team that really like established a lot of the women who then went on to like be the top runners in the 60s I think it'd be really cool to just like learn about what that that team might be like um yeah I think I'd have to go with her just as a history nerd great answer when you were little what did you want to be when you grew up oh I wanted to be a writer all-time favorite book Oh, this is tough because I want to say Little Women, but I already said Little Women. Um, I again, World War II. I love this book called Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. Um, it's about a woman who keeps dying and coming back to life, but it takes place mostly during World War II during the Blitz, and it's amazing. I, I think it won. <laughs> it won several important prizes, so uh, I would recommend that one too. If you could only race one distance for the rest of your life, what would it be? I'm going to say 5K because it's also my favorite distance to row. So I'm, I'm going to take the, the maybe I can get in a boat and do it too. Caveat. <laughs> what was your first AOL or AIM screen name? So I wasn't allowed to have one. 
Um, my father refused to let us sign up for one and I still hold it over his head because, um, I typed very poorly as a result. And so he says, why do you type like that? And I said, if you let me have AIM, I definitely would have learned how to type faster, but it's also probably why oh. I didn't have my kiss till see till my freshman year of college. And you just miss out on like those prime years yeah. of angsty away messages. I know. And like developing like stuff outside of school. So yeah, well, you're fine. Yeah. You turned out fine. If, if you could take a class in anything, what would it be? A class in anything. Um, I would want, I, this is weird, but if I could go back, there was, I took this class at Yale called the civil war and the reconstruction by David Blight. And like, I would go back and take that class again, like every year, if I could, it's just so good. And like, so it's so relevant now to the times that we live in too. And he's just a great speaker. So I would hit that over and over. Tell me three things you love about yourself. I really am, am proud and appreciate my creativity. And it's something that I lean on a lot. I am sure as this conversation have reve has revealed a very quick person. I like to do things quickly and talk fast, uh, say things quickly, make decisions quickly. Um, I don't run as fast as that would say, but I just like, like that I am a quick person um, for whatever that means. And then I think the last one, I'm very curious, um, which relates to kind of like some of those obsessions I've detailed. Um, and I think it's a nice, I think it's my favorite thing that people can have, like being curious about things and other people is, is the best. Last thing I need from you, give everyone listening a reason to run today. I mean, what gets me out of the door is every, when I really don't want to go, which sometimes is often is just thinking about like what I might learn from that run. I feel like every run teaches you something you know, whether it's just kind of like, oh, wow, I actually felt better than I thought, or uh, look at that cool tree that's in our neighborhood now, or I found a house I didn't know existed, or, you know, you you go faster than you thought. I don't know. So what is that thing that you're going to learn? And there's so few things in our life that like kind of give you the opportunity to learn something new every time you do it, which is really cool. It's a wonderful answer. I have loved getting to know you better today. And I, I hope you know how grateful I am for you, for Tracksmith and for all of the amazing support this year. I love working with you guys. I love our partnership. And I know we talked about it offline, but I hope that whether people are doing a lot of shopping right now or, you know, online shopping, retail therapy, or they're holding off, I hope that when the time does come that people want to invest their money and, and treat themselves or a loved one to something nice. They remember the brands that have really stepped up to support the running community. And, and man, you guys are, you're absolutely leading the charge on that one. So keep up the great work and thank you for all that you do for runners. Thank you so much. No, it's really fun. And um, I guess to all your listeners, if you uh, DM Tracksmith, I'm probably going to be the one who's going to answer it. So feel free <laughs> to send your questions my way. I love it. Awesome. You're the best. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Allie. Okay. The next time we chat, it'll be for the return of the On The Job series on the Allie On The Run show. Remember, make sure you're subscribed to the show. That way you don't miss a thing. There's a lot of good stuff to come. Wrap up notes. You know I'd love a rating and review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You know to find me on Instagram and Twitter at Allie on the Run One. You know the Allie on the Run Show Best Running Friends group is the best place on Facebook. And you may know that I have a Patreon page with bonus episodes. Check it out. It's patreon.com slash Allie on the Run. See, you know it all. You're amazing. And hey, thanks for joining me on the run.